morning. If we haven't been introduced yet, my name is Dave Werns. I have the pleasure of working here as your director of missions and mobilization. So that Missions Monday, I would love to get to know you guys there a little better. Uh, I also have the honor and joy of opening up God's Word with you this morning as we continue through our journey through the Gospel according to Luke. So if you have your Bible, would you open with me to Luke chapter 13? We're going to be back there. We're going to do a a quick recap. We're going to start in verse 10, and then we'll dive into our text today. Luke chapter 13, verse 10. Follow along uh, silently with me. Now he, this is Jesus. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which to work. Come on one of those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath day untie his ox or his donkey and lead away from manger to water it? Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said these things, his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things he was doing. He said, therefore... What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and he sowed in his garden and it became a tree. And all the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And he said again, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. And he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying around Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. And he will answer you. I do not know where you're from. And then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, you workers of evil. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves have been cast out. And people will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first, and some are first who will be last. Father God, we love you. We love that there is a kingdom and that we are invited in. God, we love that you have given us your word and your spirit. Would you empower us today to understand your word through your spirit so that it changes our hearts? Would you do that for us through your mighty power and your kindness? 
Amen. Whenever we look at a passage in the Gospels, whether, whether it's a, a Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, it's good for us to remember that Jesus really only had one message throughout all of his teaching. Right? His one primary message was the kingdom of God. He was constantly defining and describing, elaborating and, and correcting people on their expectations, on their assumptions about the kingdom. And this passage in Luke 13, it's, it's no different, right? It's a perfect example of why that kind of teaching was necessary for the Jews. And if we're honest, for us here today, right? The people in Luke 13 that are hearing from Jesus in person, they needed to have their assumptions and their expectations corrected about the kingdom. Friends, 2,000 years later, here in Florence, in Fort Thomas, in Independence, we need to be corrected about our assumptions, about our expectations, about the kingdom of God. Because what God chooses to measure is often radically different from what we choose to measure. I think if you look at verse 18, you'll see what I'm talking about. Verse 18 starts our text today. He, this is Jesus. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And what should I compare it to? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what should I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and she hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. At first glance, it's easy to assume that Jesus is talking about expect big things from small beginnings. Right? That's a, that's a generous motif throughout all of Scripture. And it seems as though his listeners in that day and age assumed that was his message. Because the very next question in, in verse 23, someone shouts out, Lord, will those who are saved be few? The Jewish history, if anybody had been paying attention in their, in their school, would have been completely filled, replete with examples of start, small, finish, big kind of themes. Right? In the very beginning, Adam and Eve in the garden, just two people, and God commands them, fill the whole earth. A few chapters later, Noah and his family, eight people in a boat, got the same command, right? Start over, fill the earth. Abraham was going to have more descendants than there are stars in the sky from one son. Jacob's family, not much better, a dozen or so, several dozen people go down to Egypt to escape a famine, and then hundreds of thousands of people exodus Egypt. Example after example, Gideon's army whittled down to 300, overthrow the Midian. So many examples of start, small, finish, big. It's no wonder. People were asking, is this another Gideon situation? Right? Are we Noah? Are we Jacob? You could, you could see this guy in the crowd, his mental math clicking away, right? Just... All right, there's just a couple. Are we few going to overthrow Rome? Is it time, Jesus? Are just a few of us going to do it? I think this is why Jesus needed to correct their assumptions. Friends, he's talking about more here than just uh, exponential growth strategy, right? It's not just a, a measurement of start small and, and finish big. We see that because in verse 23, 
The question of, Lord, will those who are saved be few? It is a very straightforward yes or no question. It is straight up quantity. But Jesus turns it around and gives a relatively elaborate kind of roundabout answer, not on quantity, but about quality. The crowd wants to know exactly how many people will be in the kingdom of God. And Jesus only wants to talk about what kind of person will be in the kingdom of God. Because what God chooses to measure is often radically different from what we would choose to measure. And friends, I believe the answer that Jesus gives us here in verse 24 and following, it is a lens that we can use to more clearly understand, more accurately grasp what Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God, not just here in Luke, but throughout all of the Gospels. And with that in mind, I want to spend the rest, most, most of our time here, digging into Jesus' answer in verses 24 through 30. We'll circle back to the mustard and the yeast, but, but most of our time is going to be given to verses 24 through 30. So we start in 22, and see, we see that he was moving on beyond the synagogue, right? He's teaching in the, the villages and the towns of the surrounding country, but he's not in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. So there are uh, a lot of people who would have seen his response to the crowd, his response to the, the synagogue leader, the healing even, that had an opportunity to hear this teaching as well. This isn't a very different crowd. And we don't get a lot of information about the person who asked that question. Will those who, be saved, who are saved be few? But if we take a quick look down to verse 28 and 29, it confirms that Jesus sees this conversation as a continuation of his teachings on the kingdom of God, just a few verses earlier. Verse 28 says, In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the prophets, in the kingdom of God. 29 goes on that people will come from the east and the west, the north and the south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. So Jesus is still very much in the mindset of elaborating on and correcting people about the kingdom of God when he replies to the question about how many people are going to be saved. But instead of giving a direct number or or a statistic, which he could have, he comes back with a relatively simple command. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Now, i got to be honest with you. This answer, this relatively simple command, has caused me quite a bit of trouble over the past couple weeks. I don't think I'm alone in this sort of struggle uh, to understand what he's talking about, but it is surprisingly difficult to find historic teachers that are willing to address the paradox Jesus creates here. It's frustrating. The metaphor isn't the problem, right? That Jesus is the door. He comes right out and calls himself the door in several other places. I think John chapter 10 is probably the most popular. Jesus says, I am the door. It's hard to get more straightforward than that. Right? Uh, John chapter 10, uh, verse 9. I'm the door. Uh, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Totally get it, Jesus. You're the door. Okay. I don't even think that the limited dimensions of the door 
are very problematic to most of the people who claim to be Christians, let alone the Christian scholars. Christianity, historically, is unapologetically exclusive. We do believe anyone can be saved. You just have to be saved through Jesus. That's kind of what it means to be a Christian. We get it. That's fine. Right? Come just as you are. Just come to Jesus. And I think here at Grace Fellowship, we, we actually celebrate the narrowness of the door. Right? We put it into our, our creeds and our catchphrases. Right? Follow along if you've heard this. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus... You guys get it, right? We put it on couch cushions and sell it if we could. <laughs> and then Jesus goes and adds this word, strive. Where does that go? Strive where? Strive how? What is this, what is this strive you speak of, Jesus? If the Bible really does teach That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. Which we do affirm it does teach that. We believe that. So then where does this striving happen? Where do we strive? Maybe you're one of those folks who immediately goes back to like, well, Dave, maybe just check out the lexicon and and the original languages and it'll all make sense. Okay, fair enough. All right. It's in your outline. I did look it up. I'm not going to try to butcher it by pronouncing it, but, but you can see this is clearly where we get the word agonize from, right? this original language. I did do a little digging. Turns out this word is an extreme physical effort. It wasn't exclusively designed to talk about athletes, but it was usually talked about in terms of sport and athletic effort specifically the Olympics. There were two Olympic events where this word was almost always used and almost the only word used, this agonize. The first one is a a no-holds-barred wrestling-boxing combination called pancration. If you can imagine something similar to our our cage-fighting UFC-style events, except with uh, fewer rules and more injuries, if you can imagine that. The second event where this was commonly described, this, this agonizing effort was described, was a, a foot race. It was a short foot race, a sprint. Except all of the sprinters, they did one lap around the stadium, all of the sprinters would be wearing full-on armor, right? Helmets, breastplates, shields, the whole kit. And they're sprinting full-on. The whole thing would weigh somewhere between 50 and 70 pounds, This was often the last event of the games because people would usually get hurt from the exertion. So no, no, the original language does not exactly soften the phrase. Jesus really was thinking of a maximum physical effort, a a heart-pounding, lungs-burning, pull-a-hamstring kind of effort here. So then maybe... Jesus is not talking about salvation. He's describing uh, a Christian's fight against sin and temptation. That could fit, right? We're all called to, to war against the sin and the flesh and the worldly desires. Every Christian knows that. Not to split hairs. But I did say Christians fight. Right? We don't fight our sin 
and our flesh and our temptations so that we get into the kingdom. We fight our sin and our flesh and our temptations because we are saved. Frankly, I don't think Jesus is talking about sin at all here. I don't think that's what's on his mind because if striving against sin is a prerequisite for getting into the kingdom of God, I'm pretty sure guys like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would never make the guest list. In fact, I'm absolutely convinced the only way those kinds of people or people like me or people like you have any chance of getting into the kingdom of God is if God's incomprehensible mercy and his infinite kindness were to drive his limitless power across chasms of sin, of unbelief, to offer a faith that we could never earn on our own and we do not deserve. That's the essence of grace. Right? It's God's power motivated by his kindness and his mercy to offer a people who could never earn the best good that's ever been created. Now, the funny thing about grace, grace is diametrically opposed to earning. But grace takes absolutely no issue with heart-pounding, lungs-burning, pull-a-hamstring kind of effort. In fact, they go together quite well. You could even say that grace is the fuel for the very necessary effort that Jesus is commanding us to give out in Luke 13, 24. In fact, that is my one and only real point this morning. The only way into the kingdom of God is through an all-consuming effort to know and love Jesus. Because when you get right down to it, it's all about the door. It's all about Jesus. And so the only way in the kingdom... The only way into the kingdom of God is through an all-consuming effort to know and love Jesus. We know it's an effort because Jesus says to strive, but, but we also know it's an effort because verse 24 makes it clear. You have to want it. There has to be a desire that motivates your activities. Verse 24 says... Strive to enter through the narrow door, for I tell you, many will seek to enter. All of us have to seek to enter. There is an effort there. But friends, it is a very specific effort. Not even knowing the right door is going to be enough. Because look at verse 25. Once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock, friends, there's only one door mentioned. These people were at the right door. They didn't come late. They didn't get lost. They were pounding on the right door. They had some effort, and their effort was in the right direction. But two times, the master denies them entry. 
not because of their punctuality, not because they didn't try hard enough, not because they got lost. He denies them entry two times because he doesn't know them. There is a relationship gap. Look at verse 25. Once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us and he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Verse 27 says the same thing. He will say to you, I do not know where you come from. Friends, he's citing a relationship gap here. There are some translations you may have one in your lap right now that that try to emphasize this absence of relationship by adding in a, a phrase, I don't know you or where you came from. I don't know you or where you came from. But the literal phrase here, The literal translation is, I don't know your roots. I don't know your origins. If the master was in northern Kentucky, he would probably say something like, I don't even know where you went to school. Obviously, he'd be talking about high school. The implication here is clear. We don't have history. From the master's perspective, only known people should be in the house. Only known people are invited to the party. And you don't know me. I don't know you. We don't have that kind of relationship. And it seems like the people who are knocking on the door at least agree with the premise. Only known people should be at the table because they don't start talking about their merits. They don't start talking about their punctuality or the accuracy of their knock. They actually come back and say, no, no, no. We do know each other. Kind of. Enough. You, you sat, we sat and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. We, we're known to you. What God chooses to measure is often radically different than what we choose to measure. It's hard to say, and it might be hard for some of you to hear, but you have to know. Proximity to Jesus is not the same as a growing affection for Jesus. I'm going to say that one more time. Consistent proximity to Jesus, being near and around him, is not the same thing as a consistent growing affection for Jesus. Listening to Christian music and podcasts, reading Christian books and blogs, Consuming Christian teaching and media. Friends, it is not the same as a consistent, growing affection for Jesus. There is an eternity's worth of difference. The master of the house condemns what appears to be a great many people who are very familiar with Jesus to the exact same eternal fate as the pagans and the wicked and the unrighteous. He says, I don't know you. Please hear, don't hear, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that those activities, the blogs, the resources, the music, the teaching, I'm not saying that those are not helpful in maintaining 
a consistent growing affection for God. Praise God. We have enjoyable, biblical, worshipful music that points us to eternal truth. Thank God we have timely resources that can guide us to know and love Jesus. But friends, if you're anything like me, you have to feel that draw of weighing my godly activities against my ungodly activities to discern the nature of my relationship with God. Am I in or not? I get it. This equation is tangible. It's concrete. It's measurable. And I think in some ways, it can be helpful. Right? There are real blessings. And I think some helpful and real comfort can come from having a very lopsided scale. When it comes to your holy pursuits versus your unholy pursuits, right? We want an extreme ratio between how many Piper sermons you watch and how much porn you see, right? We want a wide margin between how many Christian podcasts, Jen Wilkin or, or Al Mohler, any of these other podcasts, and, and how much gossip you regularly hear. We want there to be regular worship flowing out of your heart, not resentment, not anger, But folks, you have to know, and look at me, striving to make this gap wider does not guarantee you're in the kingdom of God. The Pharisees made a science of this. They were way better than most of us could ever hope to be. And they missed the door completely. What God chooses to measure is often radically different than what we choose to measure. And if we want to be in the kingdom of God, we must give all of our attention, all of our effort at the door itself, at Jesus. The only way into the kingdom of God is through an all-consuming effort to know and love Jesus. And this this need for an all-consuming effort, that's not just because Jesus chose to use the word strive here. He actually started that idea back in verse 18 when he chose to compare the kingdom of God to a mustard seed. Look back at verse 18. Jesus said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And what shall I compare it It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made a nest in its branches. I mentioned before, I I don't think the size gap between the seed and the tree was really what Jesus was drawing attention to. That's not the parallel that we we normally see in Scripture. When people start talking about size gaps in Scripture or something really, really big, oftentimes they would address the the cedars of Lebanon. They grow hundreds of feet in the air. As opposed to a mustard bush, you could call it a tree, I guess, but it's it, 10 feet tall, 15 max. This is more like a honeysuckle tree, if you want to call it that. No, I, I don't think that the size difference between the end mature plant 
and the original seed is really the parallel Jesus is going after because that's not the unique quality of mustard. The unique standout character of mustard is how it rapidly invades and completely dominates a plot of ground. Once it's planted, it is impossible to get rid of. Folks, it is a fast, tough, invasive weed. You might think the tenacity of crabgrass combined with the speed and multiplication of dandelions. (laughs) Maybe if you traveled south, a more applicable reference would be kudzu. It just overwhelms until there's nothing left. Just an endless forest of vine. It would be foolish at best. Dangerous at worst. If your livelihood is based on growing something other than mustard, you would be stupid to plant, deliberately plant a mustard seed in your garden because you are practically guaranteed to have almost nothing else. It overwhelms and chokes out every other plant nearby. And folks, this tenacious, invasive, dominating weed is what Jesus says his kingdom is like. So what about you? Has your growing affection for Jesus overwhelmed and choked out any of your other pursuits or pleasures yet? Are there things in your life that used to be entertaining and enjoyable you would give time and energy toward that you just can't do because you've given time to Jesus. You've given energy to Jesus. And again, at the risk of splitting hairs, I did say giving time and energy to Jesus, not doing things for Jesus. There's a difference. The gospel according to Matthew chapter 7, Jesus describes another situation very similar to this one in Luke. There's people that are trying to enter into the kingdom of God. And and he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Do many mighty works in your name? And I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of evil. Does that sound familiar? It's not verbatim, but it is close to the story in Luke, where once again Jesus cites the relationship gap as the reason for denying entry into the kingdom. He doesn't argue with the works that they did. He doesn't challenge them on their punctuality. He says, I don't know you. Folks, they did way more than the people in Luke. They did more than just sit and drink and listen. They did more than I've ever done, for sure. But clearly, that is not the same as devoting your life to an all-consuming effort to know and love Jesus. You're sharp folks, so you probably already get this. I'm going to say it anyway. Don't 
stop doing the good that you know to do. Just because it's not the most important thing. Okay? But hear me on this. Do not be afraid to leave good things undone today if it means you know and love Jesus more tomorrow. I'm going to say that again because I need to hear that this week. Do not be afraid to leave good things undone today if it means you know and love Jesus more tomorrow. This is not a license to be lazy. This is permission to prioritize. There is only one door. We must strive to enter by it alone and on his merit alone. That email can wait. That meeting can wait. Your landscaping can wait. This sermon had to wait. There's only one door. It is narrow. We must strive to enter it because there is only one Jesus. He's a very real person and it is an all-consuming effort to make that relationship, my relationship with Jesus, the most important thing in my entire life. It will cost you. I can't sugarcoat that. There are people I could be better friends with. There are opportunities we could participate in. We've been asked to do. We've been offered a position. And there will always be positions, awards, experiences, pleasures, delights, and opportunities that are just out of reach if we prioritize Jesus. But don't forget, many who are first will be last. And many of those who are last will be first. Because as we saw back in in Luke chapter 9, months ago, Jesus said, what does it benefit you if you gain the whole world, but you yourself are destroyed or lost? Friends, there is a reward for the effort. So getting back to the text, we see that the kingdom is a dominant, invasive weed that swallows up every aspect of your life if you allow it. And similarly, the kingdom of God is also like leaven that a woman took and hid into three measures of flour. If you're like me, maybe you're a less accomplished baker. Leaven is just the stuff that makes dough rise. It's bread or rolls or donuts. And the funny thing about leaven is that where the mustard seed dominates a plot of ground by by smothering it, overwhelming it, leaven, yeast, overwhelms by infiltrating, by permeating, by saturating until it's impossible to separate the yeast from the dough. My wife's a baker, and she was telling me that once you've introduced yeast to the dough, it's game over. You can't go back. That lump of dough is now leavened dough. Just a matter of time. And so this metaphor of yeast brings 
one more layer to our, our one big point today that, that the only way into the kingdom of God is through an all-consuming effort to know and love Jesus. If the mustard plant represents the kingdom of God overwhelming and dominating our activities and our actions, then the leaven, the yeast, symbolizes a gradual saturation, a gradual infiltration of the kingdom of God into our thoughts and desires. So I ask you again, what about you? Has your affection for Jesus permeated and saturated, infused your thoughts and desires yet? Are there things that make him happy that make you happy? Do the things that make you happy make him happy? I get it's a, it's a little ambiguous, so maybe a concrete example would be helpful here. My wife, Andrea, some of you might have met her, she loves grilled vegetables. It's grilling season, and so she's so excited. Really, she loves any grilled food, but, but particularly grilled vegetables. I did not have a grill uh, before we got married. I was only marginally more familiar with vegetables. I tried to kind of avoid both of them. But now, now I grill vegetables routinely. It's almost a, a daily activity for us. Some years ago, maybe eight, maybe nine years ago, I decided I wanted to be better at grilling. And there's a piece of me, I'll admit a large piece of me, that wanted to be better at grilling because I like to be good at what I do. If I'm going to devote time to something, I want to be the best I can at it. That's just me. I see some smiles. I'm probably not alone. And that was a big part of my desire to do research and get better at grilling. But there was a small piece of me It was there. It was smaller, but it was there. There was a piece of me that wanted to get better at grilling because Andrea liked grilled food. And I like her. Her being happy makes me happy. I don't know about you. I don't think either of those desires are particularly sinful. But you do recognize they are different, right? Right? In the first scenario where I'm grilling for me, I want to be better for me, I could really be done as soon as I've hit that perfect combination of texture, temperature, seasoning. Right? I could turn it off and just walk away and just bask in the glow of my backyard culinary masterpiece. It's amazing. We're done. It doesn't happen often, but I can celebrate when it does. I've arrived. I don't even have to eat the thing. It's a vegetable after all. (laughs) But on the other side, I'm not done. I haven't fully experienced this whole process until I've enjoyed Andrea enjoying the meal. Until we've eaten together and I have our, our individual joys have met and reverberated to where she's happy that I'm happy and I'm happy that she's happy and we are happy together, even though it's a vegetable. It's miraculous. Our joys are hopelessly intertwined. Friends, consider which of those takes more effort. 
Which of those two scenarios takes more time, more communication, more coordination? A consistent, growing affection for Jesus is an all-consuming effort. But it is happy work. Just like my joy in grilling for my family is work and joy, so our striving to enter into the kingdom of God by the narrow door takes effort and it is deeply satisfying. It is a joy-filled experience. Some of you are very familiar with this happy work. You've been doing it for years, maybe decades. Friends, I have a word of encouragement for you. This all-consuming effort to know and love Jesus as our highest priority, our deepest joy, that effort that you're putting out day in and day out will not last forever. It is hard work. It is happy work. And it is not eternal work. Folks, this isn't in your outline. This one's free. 1 Corinthians 13 has a lot to say about the results of this happy work. Turn there if you want to, or you can follow along. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Some of you are probably familiar. 13 verse 8. Paul is saying, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, but these three, the greatest of these is love. Friends, one day our affection for Jesus will mature into a love that we can't even begin to imagine here. We will know him the way that he knows us, and our joys will reverberate until what makes him happy makes us happy. And our joys are so intermingled, you can't pull them apart any more than you could take leaven out of a dough. We will love one another. And better than that, if you could even say better than that, instead of being dismissed by some harsh master saying, I don't know where you come from, we will hear a joy-filled king saying, well done, Good and faithful servant. Come and join in the joy of your master. We are those people. Back in Luke 13, verse 29, who come from the east and the west, the north and the south, to recline at table. That picture is a feast, friends. That is a joy-filled party. The kingdom of God is a party. And we are invited in. I recognize 
Not everybody here is quite there yet. It's possible that your joy is not his joy yet. That a constant growing affection for Jesus does not define your life yet. Even if that's not you, I have a lot of hope if you're hearing this message. Three very specific reasons that we can have a lot of hope, even if we're not yet obeying Jesus' command to strive to enter the kingdom through the narrow door. The first reason for hope is that no amount of sin could keep you out. There is no amount of sin that could keep you out of the kingdom of God. We see from the mustard seed and the, and the yeast the, the overwhelming nature of a love and affection for Jesus can choke out and dominate any thought pattern, any activity, any sin. He can overwhelm it. There's no sin that can keep you out. Number two, no one who strives to enter through the narrow door will be turned away. Knocking isn't enough, but striving isn't that hard. No one who strives will be turned away. Jeremiah 29 gives us a promise that you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Anyone who strives will find him. He promises there will be people from the east and the west, the north and the south, who are in the kingdom. Friends, it doesn't matter how far away you are. No one who strives will be turned away. And the third reason for hope is because the door hasn't shut yet. There will be a day. One day, the door will close. Nothing could open it. You will die, or the rescuing king will come back. It will be too late. But it hasn't happened yet. We can still strive today. And the door will be opened. And finally, as we close, I want to leave you with just a couple of resources, some, some ideas about how to make that growing, constant affection an all-consuming effort in your life. Just a couple of things that have been helpful to me. The first is a, a structured, unhurried time with Jesus. I say structured because it's so easy for my mind to wander. Some of you might be doing it now. Structure is, is not the most important thing, but it can be helpful. We have resources, we have uh, prayer journals, we have devotionals, we have worship music. Honestly, if you're really stuck about the structure, shoot me an email and we'll figure it out. The structure isn't the most important part, it's, it's the unhurried time. Friends, I don't know anything more valuable in your life, any resource more valuable than your time. As we saw before in, in Luke, I think it was chapter 12, he says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If you give Jesus your time, be amazed what he'll do with it. I recognize we all have different degrees of responsibility, that, that seasons of life mean time is different for all of us. But friends, if you only have two minutes to give Jesus tomorrow... My suggestion is that you strive to be as present as possible with Jesus during those two minutes and trust in his promise that all who seek him with their whole heart will find him. 
A second uh, resource, I would say, is, is recording your gratitude. Only because gratitude is one of the simplest ways to reorient yourself back towards the narrow door. Gratitude focuses us toward Jesus. I say a record because it just helps you do it consistently. Uh, the third is to think and speak about eternity. Jesus did all of these things. He made time for his father. He spoke about eternity often. He expressed his gratitude. Friends, I want to leave you today with a passage of scripture that I think encapsulates this all-consuming effort to know and love Jesus better than I could. Would you stand as I read to you a portion of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi? This is Paul talking. He says, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or, or I'm already made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward, striving forward to what lies ahead, I press on for the goal, for the prize of the upward call in God, in Christ Jesus. Friends, we have a wonderful kingdom ahead of us. Let's strive to enter and let's sing about it.